So, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be diving into 1 John chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Um, and we'll be looking at three other stories that Jesus used to actually show what this passage tangibly looks like in the life of his followers. And so we're going to be looking at uh, a lost son, a wee little man, and a good Samaritan. And I'll actually be asking some of you, and if you're online with us this morning, uh, maybe you want to get your kids ready to, uh, to chime in on the chat this morning as well, because uh, we will need your help for some of what I'm going to be speaking about this morning, okay? All right, well, let's start by first standing together as we prepare our hearts to read 1 John chapter 3, verses 13 to 18 together. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we just pray this morning that your words would come to life within us. God, would you, uh, would you use uh, what will be said and what will be uh, spoken over us this morning through your word and through the words that you have uh, kind of given me to prepare this morning as a way to both challenge and uplift us this morning. May you be with us and bless us in your name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Have you ever walked into a new place and immediately felt lost? Maybe you feel a little lost right now. You'll know what that feeling is if you've ever walked into the other store. You know what I'm talking about, right? The other Home Depot. You're like, where did they put the wood? Or the other Sobeys or the other Costco. And you're like, man, this Costco is way busier and there's less things. And I don't know where anything is. You'll know that feeling if you ever kind of go to that other store. And for many of us sitting here today, when it comes to our faith and church, We've been shopping at the same store for a while. We've gotten familiar with it. We walk into this place and we know people, we know where to go, we know how to navigate kids' check-in, we know where the washrooms are, we know where our favorite seat is, we know when to stand up, when to sit down, and what part of service it's okay to check your emails. Some of you even know the good hiding places. So you can catch that pastor while avoiding that person and disappearing before that question. I call that a Christian hat trick, by the way. Some of us have gotten so good at doing church that we have forgotten what it's like to actually experience us and experience this place for the first time. People may feel lost with where to go and what to do and wondering if this Jesus thing is even really for them. And sometimes when we get used to it, we forget about that. The surprising thing with what John is saying in this passage is that the path that leads to life isn't proven by how many times you've been at church, how easily you can navigate it, how well you know kids' church, or even how efficiently you can get what you need from it. 
What John is actually saying through this passage is that the path that leads to life is proven by how well you help others know it and help them fall in love with it. So in other words, the path leading to life requires us to lay down our own life so that Christ's life might be elevated. And so it requires us to lay down our preferences, our perspectives, and our positions. So the first point this morning is to lay down your perspective. All right, teenagers, young adults, ages 12 to 30, I got a question for you. What do you remember about the story of the lost son? Anything. Were there characters? Maybe it's a couple characters you remember. What do you remember about the lost son, also known as the prodigal son? Just shout it out. He wanted his, to t- the, the lost son wanted to take his father's inheritance. Okay, you're going to have to be loud and proud for me, teens. Don't leave me hanging. Remember, I'm your youth pastor. He came back, the, the son came back after he spent his inheritance. They killed the fattened calf. Did that happen before or after the son came back? After. Anything else about the story? He what? I still can't hear you. He ate pig food. Anything else? He wanted to be a, oh yeah, he came back and wanted to be a servant. All right, yeah, we're, we're getting there, we're getting there. First service was a little bit more lively, so I'm just, I'm relying on you. I'm sure that the online chat is just going nuts right now. This is like the day where you're like, yes, I get to be anonymous, I can just throw in my answers. Well, you can find the story in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. So just to recap quickly, there's a son who takes his father's inheritance and leaves and tries to make a name for himself. And after partying it up for a while, a famine hits and he is poor and indebted. The great recession happens in his land and all he can afford to do is work enough to eat pig slop. So the son returns home, hoping that his father will just take him back as a slave. He doesn't feel worthy enough to be a son anymore, but maybe, maybe he can go back as a slave. But to his surprise, his father receives him back as a son and throws a massive birthday party. No, not birthday party. Major party. But the thing I want to highlight is the brother's reaction to all of this, because we often forget that this story actually continues. We we put a lot of emphasis on the son returning and the father's love, and that is part of this parable. But Jesus is actually using this parable in a different way as well. And the thing I want to highlight is this brother's reaction. Because the story doesn't finish with the lost son, it finishes with the brother returning. In verse 25, beginning in verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? The servant replied, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Well, the older brother became really angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And never disobeyed your orders, not even once. Yet you never gave me even a young goat. It's not fair. 
so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered all your property, with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. It's not fair, Dad. The father said, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the point that Jesus is doing with his listeners is actually holding up a mirror to his listeners at the time and us today and asking, is your perspective limiting or celebrating who gets to be a part of the family of God? So Pastor Chris talked about the church being one big family two weeks ago. And I like to think that, that if God has, has, has created all of us on this planet, that we're all a family, but we have a lot of people that are lost in this family. And I wonder how far would you go to rescue your child if they were lost? I'm not even a parent, but I can tell you as a youth pastor, if I ever lost a student on a trip, I would do everything in my power to to find that person. And I can't even imagine as a parent how how far you would go to try to find your child. But is that the same response that you have for our lost brothers and sisters beyond the doors of this church? Is it the same response that you have for even our found brothers and sisters sitting right around you? You know, do you know if someone hasn't been around for uh, a while at our church, or do you simply leave that up to the 10 pastors to know? And, And if you do, that's okay. But then if a pastor asks you to reach out to someone who could use a friend, do you respond like the father or do you respond like the brother? 1 John chapter 3, verse 13 to 14 reads, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. The second point this morning is laying down your preference. And this question is going to be for the kids. Kids, are you ready? Maybe you can lead the, lead the way this morning for us. Okay, kids, who was the little guy that climbed the tree? What was his name? Zacchaeus. Oh, you guys are much better than our teenagers. Hey, you laugh, adults, but you're next. All right, what do you remember about the story of Zacchaeus outside of him climbing a little tree? Getting lots of tax collectors. Yeah, he gave away a lot of money. He wanted to see Jesus really badly. So, yeah. Do you, you remember what the crowd did? Remember the crowd? What did the crowd do? Do you even remember? They didn't let him in. Oh, you should just preach my sermon for me this morning. This is so great. Pastor Kathy, you're doing such a wonderful job in kids' ministry. <laughs> Yeah, so you can find this story in Luke chapter 19, verse 1 to 10. So just to recap again, little Zaki was a chief tax collector who was vertically challenged, desperate to see Jesus. He climbed a tree, hoping to get a glimpse of the man, but... Jesus
Jesus saw him. And actually, in the first service, I was looking at some of the art that was being done on these notes. And one person actually drew, like, a tree and then, like, just a face. I'm like, that is such a unique thing. Because, like, of course, if you're in a tree, like, you might just see your face. And that might be it. But he's desperate to see Jesus. But Jesus saw him. He sees Zacchaeus. And invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house, which would have been understood as a really big honor. The thing I want to highlight from the story of Zacchaeus is just what one of our kids said. Why did Zacchaeus even feel the need to climb a tree in the first place? Verse 7 gives us a clue. It says, all the people saw what was happening, saw Jesus with Zacchaeus, and began to mutter. Mutter. I'm sure we've never muttered before. Mutter, mutter, mutter. It's such a cool word. He has gone to be a guest of a sinner. Guys, do you know what's happening? Jesus, he's, he's at thy house. And in case you're not sure what his tax collector is anymore, let me just kind of refine, kind of contextualize this for you. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which today would kind of be like the guy who decides when and how to raise your interest rate this year. I'm sure we've never muttered about them. They were seen as traitors to their culture, and part of the problem with the oppression of the Jewish people that they felt with the Roman Empire. And I actually believe that the crowd made an effort to actually disrupt Zacchaeus' efforts to meet Jesus because of their own pain and self-survival. Because we know from other stories in the Gospels that People were able to squeeze through and be creative and get to Jesus. And the crowd, I don't think, was forcing anyone else to climb trees. But I think Zacchaeus knew that there is no way, because there's no way they're going to let me in. And so I'm going to climb a tree in hopes that I might be able to just glimpse, get a glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus knows this, and he, he, he finds Zacchaeus out. He, see, he, he seeks him down, and he, he comes to his church, or he comes to his house. Eventually, Zacchaeus goes to church. So, the point, the point that I think Jesus is trying to draw out of this is that he's using his love for Zacchaeus to illustrate the responsibility his followers have towards others. He's actually being a model. You know, Jesus does things and he models those things. Jesus goes before us, right? And he and we take his model and then we try to apply his model. And and so Jesus is actually modeling for his disciples in this moment what it means to be a follower. And so is your preference disrupting or deepening the call of God on people's lives? Because I'll be honest, there are moments throughout the month when I hear conversations about when someone doesn't do church right. And if that's you, then I just have to ask, what's to say that you aren't, are doing church right? Oh, but pastor, like, you don't know what they did. Did, did you know they wore their hat? Did you know, did you know that, that they came in late? Did you know that they smell a little weird? Pastor, pastor, come closer. Pastor, they swore. Pastor, they swore in church. Yeah, and all of that might be true. All of that might be right. All of that, all of that might be happening. But then are you saying that our God was surprised or offended by it? 
Or are you just offended because God might be just showing you a person who needs some care and compassion and discipleship in their life? Church, let's make sure that our preferences never speak louder than God's presence. Let's make sure that our preferences never speak louder than God's presence. 1 John 3, 15 to 16 reads, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so thirdly today, we need to lay down our position. All right, adults, I gave you lots of warning. What do you remember about the Good Samaritan? How many people were in the story of the Good Samaritan? Five? A whole bunch? At least one? Because it's a Good Samaritan? All right, how many people? Does anyone remember the positions of the Good Samaritan? There's a Good Samaritan, but then does anyone remember the other positions of the other people? Priest, robbers, a Levite, anyone else? Innkeeper, yeah, there's also a donkey in there, I think. No, it's, it's great, great answers. You, you, did, you did not fail, good job, guys. So the story comes from Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. And just to recap one more time, a man gets mugged walking from Jerusalem and is left half dead on the side of the road. A priest, or to contextualize it, a pastor, and a Levite, or again, to contextualize it, a Christian influencer, (laughs) both pass by a man. But they both pass by. The pastor's probably, you know, got that really bad email that he has to, you know, figure out how to, like, be nice to that person and stuff. And so he's he's on, on his way. And then the Christian influencer, he's, you know, I got all these followers. I have to, like, I have to do, like, my next, like, Christian jig or whatever it is. To, to be my, the influencer, and so they passed him by. But a Samaritan saw the man and helped him. The Samaritan sacrifices his finances, his possessions, his time, and his status to do so. And the thing I want to highlight about this is the Samaritan's position in all of this. Because to Jewish loyalists returning to Israel, Samaritans would have been seen as people who didn't belong in that land. There were non-Hebrew Yahweh worshippers who throughout their history mixed their pagan culture with Torah. So they were seen as sellouts. They were considered half-breeds. They were considered untrustworthy. They were considered ignored and avoided. And Jesus asked in verse 36 of this passage, he asked the expert of the law, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law replies, the one who had mercy on him. And so Jesus told him, go and do likewise. See, this parable is framed by the story about an expert of the law who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And so Jesus tells him about the good Samaritan. And the expert of the law is like, oh, darn. Maybe. But he is challenged in a way because 
the people that would be expected to do something are the ones that don't. And the people that this expert of the law, let's just say a North American Christian, would have been would have known that what Jesus is saying. See, Jesus is making a comment about the expert in the law's privilege. And to contextualize it for today, it's the North American Christian. In this parable, the ones who had all the religious clout, status, political privilege, and advantage were the, one, were the very ones who disregarded the need right in front of them. And the one who was ignored and avoided was the one who did more than was necessary to bring healing and wholeness. So is your position creating hurt or healing in the body of Christ? Verse 17 to 18 in John, 1 John 3 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And so as I invite the worship team back, and we prepare to close this morning, I wanted to end by actually giving you a, a little snapshot of what's been happening in our youth ministry. It's pretty rare that I get to stand up here and talk about the youth ministry, and so I'm taking my chance and, and talking about it. But there's some, been some really cool stuff that's been happening, and I think it really applies well in, in this sermon today. Because every year in our youth ministry, I, along with a couple of our, our core leaders, we pray and prayerfully choose a theme and passage with a, a team. And we carefully choose a passage, and that's really what directs um, this theme directs us in what we choose to do, what we decide to do, why we do what we do throughout the entire school year. And this year, our theme has been outward, and it's actually been based on this passage, 1 John chapter 3, 13 to 18. And since September, I've watched as our teenagers have risen to the challenge of being outward focused. And it's been just such a beautiful thing. I've watched as they've reached out to other students that they don't know at church. I've watched as they've begun conversations in their schools about their faith, as they've been, as they've been uh, starting to have friendships and other connections with students beyond our youth group. And they've, been, and they've even challenged themselves to be good hosts to whoever might walk through these doors on a Friday night. And as of today, we've seen over 90 new students in September walk through the doors of the church. Here's the thing, that is not the thing to actually celebrate because 75% of these, about two-thirds of, of those that have walked in that are new students have actually continued to return uh, semi-regularly because of the love and the acceptance that they feel. They are actually saying things like, I feel like I can actually talk about things here. I've been somewhere else where I, I thought you guys were this, but actually... There's something beautiful here. Like, I, I really like it. Like, people are so welcoming. Like, people, people are so, they're so loving here. Like, I feel like I can just be me. And man, like, honestly, it's so tough sometimes. As a leader, as a pastor, it's really tough. You know, sometimes there's glitter spills in the foyer that we have to clean up and continue to clean up for months. Sometimes there are things that happen and 
and we try very diff- try very hard to, to make sure. But it's tough sometimes. It's messy sometimes. When people walk in and see this place as just a building, but then experience the love of Jesus within this through people, it gets messy because worlds are colliding. It's tiring. And can I tell you, sometimes it's heartbreaking hearing the stories and all you can do is just sit with a person and sit with a student and just listen. And you don't know what to say, and you know that they're going back to the situation in an hour. And all you can do is just sit with them and be present. And it can be heartbreaking, but but man, is it filled with blessing. It is so filled with blessing to see teens be transformed by the power of God, and then they go back and they transform their friendships and their families because the power of God is within them. And while we should be celebrating what God is doing in the youth ministry, I can't help but realize that there are 33,000 more teenagers in this region alone that have no, no loyalty, no sense of, uh, of loyalty to any religion. They are non-religious. 33,000 teenagers that do not know who Jesus is, don't even know to ask the question who Jesus is. I can tell you that our team of 30 leaders is not going to be enough for that. And then if, if we look at StatCan just a little bit more and we say, okay, it's not about teenagers, it's about everybody. There are 200,000 people living in this region in the same predicament. They don't know what they don't know. And they don't know about this place. They don't know about the love of Jesus. They don't know about the body of Christ. Church, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. But there is good news. There is good news. I wouldn't just leave you hanging like this. There's good news for us today because there are actually the same number of Christians as there are non-religious people in this region. And so that means that if every Christian made an intentional effort to care for the people who do not yet belong to the family of Christ that God then puts in front of them, church, we could completely transform our region by simply making friends. But it means laying down our own life, our own preferences, our own perspectives, our own positions, and doing the hard work of actually making friends, loving others, reconciling differences, making friends. And making friends means being outward focused and laying down our life. So how do we take the next step? Because I'm a very practical person. I work with teenagers and teenagers, they need the practical insight. And and I, I believe that sometimes as adults, we just overcomplicate it. So I wanna challenge you to take a page out of our next generation and to learn from our next generation. So here are four easy steps on how you can make friends this week. First is this, pray. 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 Ask the Holy Spirit to put people in front of you you never noticed before. Pray for people you personally know, whether you love them or hate them. Pray for the person. Pray for the family that that whose whose kids are bullying your kids. Pray for that family. Don't just go like mow bear on them. There's probably a time and place for that, but pray for them. Pray for them as well. Secondly, extend childlike friendship. This is probably the most 
most important one, actually. Extend childlike friendship. When we were kids, all it took was walking up to someone and saying, Hi, I'm Andrew. Do you want to be friends? Great. You want to be friends? Great. Awesome. What's your name? Awesome. Okay. Do you want to go swing? Awesome. Let's go swing. Let's go on the monkey bars. Let's go do it. And all of a sudden, you had a friend. And while you certainly set boundaries as you go in friendships, I think as adults, we sometimes get the two mixed up. And we start setting boundaries before we ever say hello to somebody. Church, can I encourage you to learn from our children and to make childlike friendships? Thirdly, talk and be curious. Talk about yourself. Talk about why you love what you love. Talk about why you come to a building on Sunday morning and why that's important. But also listen curiously. Don't just preach at them. Listen and be a friend to them. Listen to where they're at. Maybe they're at no place to be talking about faith, and that's okay. Be their friend. Be love. Be transparent, genuine, and authentic. And fourthly today, trust God with the results. I think sometimes we can uh, put the cart before the horse and we say, okay, we're going to be your friend because, man, do you need some prayer. <laughs> sometimes sometimes we, 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 we move forward too fast and we don't trust God enough with the results. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Don't start a friendship with an agenda. Don't do it. They'll see right through it. Because you would. Don't start a friendship with an agenda. Start a friendship. And see what God would do in it. We had just such an amazing conversation in our student leadership on, on Friday. And it was about how God can equally reveal himself through somebody that doesn't know him as he can with somebody that, that does know him. We talked about Balaam and, and the donkey and, and how Balaam wasn't, wasn't a, a Yahweh follower. He wasn't a Christ follower. Church, just be authentic and see where the friendship goes and trust God with the results. Don't start a friendship with an agenda, but instead be faithful to the time and connection that you have with them and trust that God is a big God and that their salvation is not your responsibility. It's God's responsibility. Your responsibility is to love, is to be friends. And then allow God, as we become lesser, allow Christ to become more in our life. And through that, believe that God is going to do a miracle. Because church, I'd rather be hated for loving Jesus than causing someone to hate Jesus because of me. I really would. So church, let's make friends well. Let's love even better today. Let's pray.